and you shouldn't be scared to take your kid to the hospital, you know, when you're doing the right thing and know that if one person suspects that that broken bone wasn't because, you know, Charlie fell off the bed, like that your kid could be taken from you. Really scary. Kat Sadler now. You know, this show should feel like home for you guys. I want you to feel a wee bit better in your own skin. So be here now. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Kat Sadler Now. I'm Kat, your host, and so glad you landed here in September. Can you believe it's September already? Gosh, my mind is blown. This whole year has been moving so, so fast. I hope you've had a chance to listen to some of our recent episodes, some really kick-ass women on the show, Jennifer Fisher from Jennifer Fisher Jewelry, a lot of you loving that conversation about business, about cosmetic surgery, about becoming empty nesters, kids going to college, so many real issues and topics that affect so many of us. Also, Allison McNamara from Mara Beauty was on the show last week, loved learning her a little more. We got schooled on our skin health a little bit. Today, I'm 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 kind of making a hard right turn. Um, and I love the space and I love the show for many reasons, but one of them being, you know, I'm not giving you the same kind of talk week after week. And today is very different because this is a conversation with a filmmaker by the name of Caitlin Keating. And maybe you, uh, as you are flipping through all your streaming channels, discovered Take Care of Maya on Netflix. This is a documentary. It is highly... uh, disturbing. It's very emotional. It's tragic. It's captivating. And it's frustrating on so many levels. My friend Molly Shannon, who is one of my sources for all things television, she's always giving our little mom friend group tips on, have you seen this? Watch this. Well, she was the one she said, you've got to see Take Care of Maya. And then I did. And then I couldn't shake it. I could not shake this story. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. But then as fate would have it, Caitlin Keating, who is responsible for getting this story from the papers essentially onto the screen, she is a fellow Indiana University Hoosier alumni like myself. And so we connected and and she came here on the show and gave some of her very precious time to explain this process, to give us an update on the family, to talk about what it was like transitioning from being a reporter for people um, and then becoming a producer, pitching a show like this to Netflix. You know, guys, that's like it's almost an impossibility to even get that done. It's very, very difficult. And so for a first-time filmmaker, what that was like. If you don't know about this story, which, by the way, the documentary now has been seen on some 20 million TV sets around the world. It is just caught on and grown in popularity. Uh, the story is now widespread. But it all centers around a young girl by the name of Maya who was diagnosed with complex regional pain syndrome, CRPS it's called. And 
ultimately at the core of this story is about parents wrongly accused of child abuse. So I don't want to tell you too much. Maybe you should hit pause, go watch the film and come back because uh, what we learn about this this whole uh, experience, both for Caitlin, but also what she reveals and kind of exposes about the child welfare system is really, really interesting. And I think you will find worth your time listening to this. I know I sure did. So I'm going to stop talking so you can hear from her. Um, If you like this conversation, this episode, this show, I sure hope you go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Let us know your thoughts. A super quick review on Apple Podcasts goes a long way. So love you guys. Hope you have a great week and enjoy this conversation. Caitlin, welcome to the show. This story, this documentary has been just gripping the world. Millions and millions of people impacted by this story. You were the woman that brought Take Care of Maya to light globally. The response has been massive. So just thank you for coming on to tell more of Maya's story, your story professionally and personally. And I'm just going to say to check right in with you and take your temperature, just how are you doing? How are you actually doing through all this? Because you've taken on so very much with this with this effort. Well, first, just thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I've just been listening to your podcast forever. So it's a real honor. I'm feeling exhausted, <laughs> happy, relieved. You know, when you work on something for four years, basically full time, and then you share it with the world, right? In 168 countries, the the nerves of just, you know, what are people going to think? Are we going to make the family proud? You know, what's what's going to be the takeaway? And you just try so hard to get it right. But until it's out there, you just don't know. And it's been, yeah, just a lot of decompressing and just feeling so grateful that the world is receiving this so well and that the conversation from it has just been so incredible. Mm. It's, yeah, it's just a real blessing. Mm. Well, you're making such an impact too, and and you've you've brought this issue of families or parents wrongly accused of child abuse to the forefront. So I want to get into how important that is and kind of the the trickle effect of telling the one family, the Kowalski family story. But just to back up, for those who haven't seen the film and, and don't know you, I mean, I think it's interesting, your own personal story. Firstly, we should mention that we've kind of connected in the past because we also have the same Indiana University alma mater, back go Hoosiers. Yes. But then you were, you were working for people full-time. You were a human interest reporter, true crime reporter, I'm curious just why even those stories then appealed to you. Like, how did you get into that specific genre of journalism? And and then, you know, the big pivot, obviously, to tell this story. Yeah, it's a great question. So I grew up in New York City and both my parents were photojournalists. They worked for the New York Times. They covered They covered these human interest stories just from behind the camera. So growing up, that's what I saw. I saw them taking on these really important human interest stories, mainly in New York City. I was just so blown away by the impact that those photos would have. And 
you know, it was just walking down the streets. It was, they were always pointing out, you know, there's that homeless person, but he has a story. You know, how do you think he got there? How do you think he's living on Park Avenue now? And that, that was just always something that I noticed and just something I cared about. And when I went to IU, I was working at the school newspaper. I was doing a story, you know, about the woman who cleans the dorm rooms that I was living in, right? And all these New York City kids living there, but she's from Bloomington and never left. And what was her story? So I always had that in me. And I just had the privilege of getting this job at People right after college. Well, I went to Fortune magazine for a year and knew that covering businessmen was, was not my thing. And in the same building at Time Inc. got this job at People. And it was just the best job in the world. I got to pitch stories and travel around the country and just get to know ordinary people going through such an extraordinary situation. And the one downside was that they were really quick stories and I couldn't spend too much time talking to them. And after about eight years there, I, I love documentaries and I was like, you know, I really want to make one, but I still need to pay, you know, my rent in New York City. So what am I going to do? And I found this story in the Sarasota Herald Tribune about the Glossy family that you see in the film, Daphne Chen. She finds the story. She writes this big piece. And right away, I just was so blown away and, and just had this feeling in my gut that this was bigger than a People magazine story, that it was something that it just had such rich archival. It lent itself so well to, to film. And once we realized that this was a much bigger story, not just the qualities, I, I basically quit my job a couple months later and partnered with a great production company, great partners, and brought it to Netflix and they bought it. So pretty wild. Because that's easy to accomplish in and of itself. I mean, you see the story, you know there's so many layers, and, and I understand you're like, this is it. You'd wanted to, to branch into film. It spoke to you in so many ways. But going from just being passionate about something to being in the pitch room at Netflix is, is a big jump. I mean, had you ever done that? Had you pitched other things? Or is this the first go? No. No, I mean, I'm, I'm used to pitching stories every day, you know, every week to my editor. I produced a lot of video shoots. I did a lot of on-camera work there and kind of had to quickly, you know, fly somewhere and produce a shoot, but nothing at this level. And that was what was crazy. I was like, Netflix is saying yes to this, like me being the producer. I mean, thank you, Netflix. But I was a little shocked. And I think it's because I, I was just so passionate about it. And they might have been taking a risk on me, but I don't know. I just felt like I had done so much reporting already before I even brought it to them and this fancy 60-page deck and sizzle reel. And it was kind of like they had to say yes to me because they wanted the story, I feel like. And I think it worked out. I think, yeah, I think they're very happy now. But it was, yeah, it was very risky. And yeah, not having a job for a few months and going back between New York City and Sarasota, Florida, where the Kowalskis live. Yeah, and just... You know, but again, it was back to my parents because they did that. They took risks when they were younger and they, they were like, yeah, do this, Caitlin. You know, and if it falls apart, we'll help you out for a little bit, but not long. Mm, yeah, no, <laughs> so no, make, I so get make that. It work. But make just it work. to make, to make you feel even better and to make, you know, people who aren't in the industry understand, I mean, before you can even get a story made, uh, listen, I, I've pitched a show to Netflix with Jennifer Lawrence as my EP and still got rejected. So, I mean, it, wow. it ain't easy. It's You're been, making me feel pretty good today. <laughs> I'm serious. So, like, it, I, it is such an, an incredible feat in and of itself to even start to make 
a film. And then to have the response that you've had, is, it, I mean, listen, I don't know what you believe, but like, I feel like the story was meant to be told. So you did decide to leave your job. And for a lot of women listening, we talk on the show all the time about, you know, what we're really being pulled to do and what is perhaps our real calling. What did it feel like leaving people and and really going 100% full throttle into this this new film for you? It was it was terrifying, but I felt like I was ready for it. You know, and I feel like the most rewarding things in life you go into it just petrified because there's so much on the line and it could go one or two ways and it was always that that pressure like, well, I'm telling this this family story and they've just been through the most tragic thing imaginable like the pressure as a journalist as a filmmaker producer to to be fair and balanced but also you know make them proud in the end and not have them have any regrets about trusting me because it's like why trust me you don't you don't know who I am but I hope you do and it was yeah I mean there was some security obviously because Netflix bought this from the beginning but it was it was frightening and I always had a full-time job so to do that and then create my own schedule and, and make it work. I mean, it was, yeah, it was a lot. And and then we didn't really expect it to take four years, but this was also during COVID. In the film, you'll see we were there to film a trial that got pushed. So it was constantly waiting to have that trial, wanting that to be in the film. So hopefully the next project does not take four years. But to tell it right, these these stories do take a long time. They, you know, they deserve, they deserve the time. Yeah. This episode of Cat Sadler Now is brought to you by BetterHelp. It's very human to be in our minds, in our heads. The thoughts can be endless. We live such full, busy lives. The world is moving so fast all the time. But our thoughts can often take over, right? Like we can feel them overwhelming us. And before we know it, we've missed the present. We've missed the moment. Maybe you're disrupted by sleep because of your thoughts. Maybe you're like not really being fully in the moment with the people you love and in your relationships because of those nagging thoughts. Well, guess what? You're not alone. One way to make all those racing thoughts go away is to talk them through. So many people go through this, myself included. Therapy, though, gives you a place to work through those thoughts, to talk through those thoughts, to get out of your negative thought cycles and find some mental and emotional peace. I've talked to you about my therapy experience, how much I have benefited from it, and I know that you can too. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient. It's flexible and it's suited to your schedule. Gotta love that. Just fill out a brief questionnaire, get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if you want to try somebody different. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash cat today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash cat. Let's set it up for everyone. And I want everyone to go and watch the film. But you mentioned the archival footage. I mean, this story spans several years. We we are introduced to Maya as, as a young girl. Can you set up 
her her health situation, how this entire journey began, and then how it turned so incredibly tragic. Yeah. So Maya, her family, her younger brother, Kyle, her mom, Beata, her dad, Jack, they moved from Chicago when she was around nine years old to sunny Venice, Florida. They wanted a change of pace and get away from the snowy, you know, snowy winters of Chicago. And everything was great for a little while until Maya started to get sick. And it it started with asthma problems and all pretty minor. But then it really kind of progressed. And she started to have, you know, burning sensations in her body and just a lot of really alarming symptoms. And her parents, you know, like any two great parents are going to try to figure out what's wrong with their kid and go to as many doctors as they feel like they need to. And they did that. And, and then they found a diagnosis. They found a doctor who diagnosed her with complex regional pain syndrome. And one of those treatments for it was ketamine. So, I mean, it was pretty controversial back then, but it worked for a while. Like the ketamine helped Maya for about a year. And she was back to swimming and playing with her friends, just like a typical 10-year-old, until one night she relapsed and she was in excruciating pain. And her dad took her to the hospital, Johns Hopkins, all Jolton's hospital. And that's when everything took a turn for the worst. And when Beata got there a few hours later, she was at work, so she was a few hours late. Within days of her being there, the mother, Beata, was accused of medical child abuse. So Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And that's, yeah, that's kind of really how this all began. I was so amazed in the film, you know, and, and you mentioned why why. Part of part of this was made possible because of all of the archival footage. Where did that come from? How 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 did you have access to that? Was the family just all along documenting this? Yeah, I mean, if you have crazy archival footage, just as much as we did, that's what in the beginning made me realize like this is a documentary, right? This is more than just a four page story. And people, the mom Beata was a nurse, and she kind of knew to document everything. And Jack did too. I think he was just naturally a note taker. But Beata knew how important it was to report everything. So she did that before she was even accused of child abuse. And once the accusation happened, you know, that's when she really kind of documented even more. So between just normal archival footage of, you know, home videos and family photos, which most people have, Beata had all of these things for this case that she didn't know was going to you know, get to where we are today, basically. She didn't know how long this case was going to last and what would really happen. But because of that, we were able to make this film. And it also really helped out the attorneys who ended up coming into this case down the line. Yeah. I think of the word pain because this word is so central to so many layers of the story. I mean, because the whole story starts with Maya's actual physical pain. But then Mm -hmm. just the pain of a mother being separated from her daughter, I like, I cannot even fathom. And, you know, the kind of litigious side of this or the systematic way that things are set up, or at least they are there in Florida, where, you know, a a family can't even access their daughter. So then they are in clear pain over the situation. Maya doesn't know why this is happening, you know, because she's only privy to so much information. I mean, there's just so much, so much pain to the point that her mother, Beata, takes her own life. Were you, did you come to the story after that? Or did you come to the story before that? I did. Okay. Yeah, so Daphne Chen was doing, so after Beata's death, Jack Kowalski, Maya's dad, decided to take legal action. So Daphne Chen was doing a story about that. 
So it was about what had happened. And this was in 2019 she did the story. Beata passed away in 2017. So it had been a couple of years. And that's when I, that's when I got involved. Yeah. The pain has never gone away, obviously, right? I mean, you kind yeah. of adapt to a new normal, but this happened back in yeah, 2016, 2017. And Maya was at the hospital for three months. You know, I think her parents, Jack at least told us, they just thought Maya was never going to get out of there. And you see in the film over three months, this family just falling apart and just yeah. every day just becoming more devastated. Yeah. Beata, Maya's mother, is an immigrant, was from Poland. And, you know, there's this kind of discussion about the way she was perceived. She was very, firstly, she was a nurse, so she was incredibly knowledgeable. She could back up, you know, everything she was, you know, kind of championing for her own daughter. She she knew the facts. She knew the medical lingo. But she was very direct. She was obviously fighting for her daughter's life, for her daughter's health. But she was, you know, that that almost came back to to bite her. I mean, the texts between different staff there at the hospital, nobody nobody liked her from day one. Do you, how much of uh -huh. just the her, her own all the parts of her do you think contributed to the way that this case kind of ended up going? I think it was a huge part of it. And that's what everyone told us from, you know, the moment that Jack was at the hospital. He said, you know, they just didn't like Beata right away. She was aggressive. She was pushy. And what the attorneys had told us, too, is like, does that make you a child abuser? Right. I mean, can you be a pushy parent, but be also but also not be guilty of child abuse completely? And I think Right away, that was something. Yeah, they they just didn't like her. Just many TikTok videos I've actually seen. People, a lot of parents posting since this film came out. And they they all noticed that, right? They were like, she's a Polish immigrant in communist Poland. She's been through a lot. She's seen a lot. Just an absolute, like, you know, fighter in a way. And this one person on TikTok actually pulled up an article about the bias towards women with Polish accents. Like, there's oh, an article out there about that. Wow. It's It's not... It's just not a surprise that that was something that, you know, they were. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for them, obviously, but this is a common thing. You'll see a lot of parents around this country who speak out who are immigrants who have said the same thing, that just right away they felt threatened by them or maybe couldn't relate to them. And yeah, I think from the very beginning, Beata, she was determined and she knew what worked for her daughter. And there was a conflict right away between between her and the doctors for, I think, many reasons. Mm. Yeah. One of the other just standout things from watching the film that I think really, you know, probably shocked a lot of people was I just, the, when this case gets into the system and it's, you know, you've got your, your villain in the film, Sally Smith, you know, and she's on the, on the, on the side of, of, I guess the state technically or the hospital, you know, she's on the side to fighting to, to make sure that Maya is safe, you know, for whatever her reasons that she believed that that was her job to do that. But then this goes into the, the, the system, you know, they're in court, in and out of court all the time, just trying to even see their daughter. I just, I couldn't get over the tug and pull and how the judge kept siding with the the state instead of the family. And I guess just inherently as a parent, I always thought, well, where are the mother's rights? Where are the, like, I feel like that the, the, 
the rights should be with the family before the system who doesn't know. I mean, I get the, the layer there to protect children. Obviously, we need that. But I couldn't get over just how it felt like, through your work anyway, watching the film, it just felt like the judge was somewhat blind to everything. It felt like he was almost in, like, cahoots with the the, the hospital more than he was with the, the humanity piece of making sure these humans were okay. I mean, like you like you just mentioned, I mean, the child welfare system is super complicated and child abuse is real, right? Like the, there are parents out there who are horrible and they should be prosecuted like no other. And I think everyone that got into this system, including the judge, like right, family court, I mean, all these people, like they're there to help families and children. And I'm not sure what it what happened, but something along the way went wrong. And I think a lot of people throughout the entire country who work in this field, you know, they've seen so many horrible things that it's kind of like once you see abuse, like you can't not see it in a way. And you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to send home a child to their parents and something horrible happens. And that's what every every expert we've talked to has said that. It's like it comes down typically to one person's decision that this is probably child abuse and judges typically are going to believe a doctor, right? I mean, there's the credentials. They've been, Sally Smith, for example, has been doing this for 35 years and she's definitely seen horrible things. And it's just really hard. It's just a, it's really a broken system. And unfortunately, we don't have the answers to figure out how to fix it. But since this film came out, so many people from CPS workers, to child abuse pediatricians, to judges have reached out to us being like, we knew this was a problem, but no one's really been covering it. And a lot of different states kind of need to come together so that like change does happen. And I think just really smart people need to figure it out because it's a mess. And you shouldn't be scared to take your kid to the hospital, you know, when you're doing the right thing and know that if one person suspects that that broken bone wasn't because, you know, Charlie fell off the bed, like that your kid could be taken from you. Really scary. And it happens all the time. All right, you guys want to let you in on a little secret. Did you know the key to a revved metabolism is a healthy gut? You know I love Saqqara. Been talking about Saqqara on this show forever. And been a proud recipient of Saqqara meals for many, many years now. So you guys, if you haven't tried Saqqara you're gonna love it. Sakara's flexible signature nutrition program makes it easy to reset your digestive and metabolic health around your busy fall schedule. This is a perfect time to try Sakara. Maybe you're returning to the office, you're getting back in your routine or your rhythm. Get plant-rich lunches delivered and you know you can upgrade that sad little desk lunch of yours to a super satisfying and healthy meal. If you're tired of planning dinner, it's going to get hectic. Maybe the kids are back in school. Don't worry about it. Get two to five meals delivered each week and take back your free time. You can do something else with all of those valuable minutes. And by the way, you can customize even more of the meals if you subscribe. Sakara's options are endless. They're delicious and they are catered to your taste and time. You cannot beat that. 
So here's your reminder. Sakara delivers science-backed, plant-rich nutrition programs and wellness essentials right to your door, guys. Their organic, ready-to-eat meals are nutritionally designed to help you optimize your well-being and get results you can see and feel. From digestive wellness and eased bloat to enhanced metabolic health, energy, and safe weight management. Right now, you guys, Cat Sadler Now listeners, get 20% off your first order when you go to sakara.com slash cat or enter cat at checkout. That's sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash cat for 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash cat. Feel it for yourself. On a way, 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 way different scale. I mean, all of us have been accused of something we didn't do. There's nothing worse than being accused of something you didn't do. And once that accusation is there, there's always the stigma attached to it. Like it's it's once that has been lobbied as an accusation, you know, I feel for all of these yeah. families that are wrongly accused. And I know that you've heard from so many of them. And what another beautiful piece of impact from from your work is that, you know, a lot of a lot of families are feeling seen and they're feeling heard for the very first time. I know you, you've been inundated with emails and DMs and, and by the hour from around the world. Yeah. How many people now have viewed the film at all? Because when I first heard from you, some 15 million had seen it. How many have, have watched now? Do you have any way to know? Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers, but I think it's around like 19 million. And that's just like, TV sets, right? So we suspect that most people are watching it with someone. And obviously Netflix does not know how many eyeballs are watching the shadow film at the same time. But yeah, it's a lot of people. It's done, it's done remarkably well. And I think it is because a lot of people can relate to what has happened or they think, okay, well, this could happen to me. And they didn't know that it was a huge problem. I mean, when this film was being produced, when it was being done, you know, word got out to a lot of different parents who started contacting us saying, can we be in your film? You know, we have a crazy story too. And unfortunately, we could not include all these other voices. And also just sort of, we just thought it'd be stronger, obviously, to focus on one family to really be able to go in depth into one personal, emotional, tragic journey. But you do see at the end, like you said, there are other families that we interviewed and it's been overwhelming because you just want to help everyone. And the messages I'm getting, yes, yeah, still basically every hour from around the world are just like, this happened to me. You know, I can't hire an attorney. I lost custody of my kids. I didn't do anything wrong. It's horrible. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. But there is also this uplifting conversation that's coming out of it. Of, like you said, people feeling validated, feeling heard, especially people who also have been diagnosed with CRPS, which is what Maya has, saying, well, it's a rare disease and I wasn't believed, but hey, now it's on Netflix. You know, now people mm -hmm. in my community are being like, oh yeah, maybe you're onto something here. Maybe you do have this disease. And there's, yeah, it's just been, that's been a great part of this. People feeling like, wow, they can see themselves in the Kowalskis. What do you tell the families who say this also happened to me? It's like you can't save every one of those families. I mean, that, that that's a lot to come at you and feel like almost a responsibility to try to help all these people. What do you tell them? I mean, I haven't responded to all of them just because I really wanted to just sit with this. And I'm, I mean, I'm saving all these messages. I'm putting them in one place. 
And the people I have responded to so far, though, I just, you know, I'm like, you can email me your, a lot of them have asked if they could email me their story, more details. And these parents, what they all have in common is they say, I have all the documents to prove that my kid actually had something else. Can I send you all these documents? Can I, because I think when you're innocent, like, you know, you reach out to someone like me, you want to prove that you're right. And like you said earlier, there's nothing worse than, you know, being accused of something you didn't do. So I say, you know, you can email me and, you know, I hope to be in touch in the future, but I wish there was a place I could direct everyone. Oh. But it's it's hard. Yeah, it's, it, it does feel like a burden in many ways to to feel like I have to save all the children in the world. <laughs> yeah. But you can't, you know, I feel right. like the, the film right. has helped a lot of people and this can't become, you know, yeah, can't help everyone, unfortunately. Well, I imagine you and Maya have become pretty close. She's 17 now. Is that right? And we should tell everyone, yeah. I mean, here, here's the thing. This story isn't over. I mean, the, the, the film ends kind of on a cliffhanger where, you know, you're like, how can this be? I mean, I've heard so many people talk about the film's ending and, and just the, again, it's like this family cannot catch a break. And so the, the, it's not over. Things are going to trial. I know you can only talk so much about that, but where do things stand now and what are the possible outcomes? Yeah, and as you see in the film, we were there in April of 2022 when they were supposed to go to trial and it was pushed at the 11th hour and you see how devastated they are. I think that's why the public has been so outraged because they just see that deep sadness and pain on, on their face, not just from their tears, but you can just tell how much that destroyed them and now it is set for September 14th, 2023 for jury selection. I think it might end up being like an eight-week trial. So, you know, they they just want their day in court. I think at this point, no matter what the outcome is, they're, you know, they're going against the hospital. They have many claims of what they're accusing them of, of having done during the time that Maya was at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. But, you know, they just want to be, they just want it to be over. They want to move on. They want to leave Venice, Florida area. They they just want to put this behind them, but they really just want justice for Beata. You know, they that's what gets them up every day. They just want, they know that that's what she would want. And that's why they've never given up. And I think they want to really prove and show the world that from their own words, that, you know, Beata, the only thing she did was try and help her child and ended up taking her life because of it. And I think the film they've said to us, though, has given them a lot of closure. So no matter what the outcome, they feel like they have they have told their story and they have told their truth. So, you know, I'll definitely be watching the trial and I'll probably go down there, too. And I yeah, I just they just want it behind them. They just want to move forward. How is Maya's health today? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously better than what it was when she was at Johns Hopkins, you see her in the film, right? She's able to ice skate and do these things, but she's still in a lot of pain. And Jack told me recently that, you know, he woke up to her crying in the middle of the night in pain. So what I've been told with CRPS from Dr. Kirkpatrick, who's in the film and other experts that, you know, there are ups and downs with CRPS and that you can relapse. So while she might be in remission, or just doing a lot better than she was. You just, you never know. Or I think there's a lot of fear to Maya's expressed that like if she hurts herself in some way, could that trigger a relapse? 
because that's something we've seen with older people with CRPS is that they can be fine for a decade and then something happens and Mm. they're back in the hospital. So a lot of unknowns. I know there's no closure there either, right? It's like you never know what can happen. Right. So having been so close to this story and for any parents listening, like what, what, what should parents know? I mean, I guess when it comes to their children and going to a hospital, if there is some type of incident or accident or illness, like what, what would you, what, what precautions should they take or what should they be thinking about? Well, I think that if you go into a hospital something could be used against you. So I think it's just knowing that you just need to be, you need to be careful what you're saying, to be honest, I think. Like you want to be, of course you're honest, but I think it's it's hard to say. I mean, sometimes you can go in and your kid will have 10 broken bones and they'll believe you and then you could go somewhere else and they might not. But I just think you're not going to go to a hospital with an attorney, obviously, <laughs> but just knowing that what you say could be used against you. And you're not always really sure who you're talking to. You know, a lot of the time, child abuse pediatricians do not state what their role is. And while they're not investigators, they are, they can use that information and put that into, you know, a report to show a judge potentially. So not trying to put fear into anyone, but just knowing that, you know, they are there to protect children and they are looking out for child abuse. And it doesn't take much for them to think that it could be. So it's hard. There's no like real clear answer to that. But I think seeing Take Care of Maya, you see that not every story is going to turn out with this tragic, horrible accusation and outcome, but that, yeah, you're not, you're not immune to it just because you didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. You, you are a journalist. You were writing. Now you're filmmaking. What, what was the standout thing you learned about filmmaking through this process? It just, it takes a while, you know, it's not a quick, it's not a quick hit. You're not going to get everything you need from someone in one take that you really have to have a lot of patience. And it's not just one sit down interview, unless that's all you have, obviously, with someone, but it just takes a lot of time. And that even when you think you're done, you're not, you know, like the post-production part of it is just a really grueling process. And and as a journalist, I feel like even at People Magazine, I was, I still felt very independent. Like I only had my editor and maybe the top editor there looking over the work. But with a film at this scale, there's so many people involved. And yeah, it's people that you never even met. I think like a hundred people probably at Netflix worked on this film, right? Behind the scenes from the beginning to the end. And yeah, it just takes a lot of time. It's, it's a complicated process because you just want, you want it to get out there in the world. But, you know. This took, yeah, four years. So it doesn't happen overnight. And you have to know that going into it. Like, yeah, yeah, it might take years. And if you're not, if you're not comfortable with that, you don't have the patience, then yeah, documentary filmmaking is not for you. That's for sure. Well, it's so consuming. I I have other friend, female friends who make some documentary films and I, I watch from afar and I'm like, it is so admirable because it is so consuming and it is so such a sacrifice to dedicate not just your work, but it does become your life is dedicated to getting this out there. It's not like you go check out at five and I'm thinking, I watched that film. It took me like a day to recover. I had nightmares watching the movie and you're, you're left, your cortisol levels are spiking, even just watching it. 
so to make it like how how do you protect your own energy and spirit when it's such a heavy heavy load yeah i don't think i did a good job with that at all i think you know because your life you're also living your life right at the same time it's during covid during this time my father my father got very sick and passed away i was in a relationship that ended up ending during all of this and you just still have to like keep it together and and you're watching the film numerous times a day so it's it's a lot and you just but then you remind yourself like it's not as bad as what they went through right the Kowalski family so but it's it's a lot to put on yourselves and and there's a lot of stuff you guys obviously didn't see in the film right so we're listening to everything we're watching everything and yeah, it was it was difficult, but I think the next film can't be like that. <laughs> oh my You know, it can't gosh. be so intense. Not every story needs to like, you know, make you cry and feel all these things. But yeah, over four years, a lot happens in someone's life. Mm. You know, it's highs and lows. And you just I've never had a job where you check out at 5 p.m. and you're, you know, you go have dinner with your friends and don't have to think or check your email until 9 a.m. the next day. So I'm comfortable with that, but this is something that definitely kept me up many nights, wanting to make sure I was doing a good job, being fair. You know, that was a huge thing in this film. It was making sure that we we told the the side of the hospital because, as you see, they weren't interviewed in this. So it was going through every single deposition from from their side and just making sure it was a balanced story. So there was a lot of pressure there too to to make sure as a journalist, right, that I wasn't just mm-hmm. telling one side to a story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, so yeah, so, last night. Gosh, Caitlin, I'm so sorry for the loss of your dad. And oh, man, thank you. gosh, well, I, I know you you're you're close with your mom, right? Because you're in New York City, but then you can go see your mom upstate. Is that right? In New York? Yeah, so she is apartment in the city still, but she got a house in the Catskills. Okay. She and my dad did three months before COVID. So that was a blessing because, you know, real estate here now is insane. But right before that, it's this beautiful old farmhouse and 30 acres of land and like this cute little town. And yeah, I mean, the thing about New York City is like, if you can't leave New York City on the weekends or, you know, sporadically, like you shouldn't live there because you're there full time. It's going to make you go insane. So... Yeah, so I come up here often and it's great. It's quiet and yeah, very close with my mom and my younger sister. And yeah, it's just been a crazy, beautiful two months. And then, you know, the film premiere, the Tribeca Film Festival opening weekend and the family got to be there and they got to be in this live audience with everyone just giving them a standing ovation, which was, it made it all worth it. You know, it was so cool to sell it to Netflix and have it be seen by so many people. But to then have them in a theater, that was just like, that was really special. Oh, how beautiful. Okay, so there are some 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 things to be celebrated here, no doubt, no doubt. And because of all of your sacrifice and hard work, I mean, what's next for you? Because, you know, it ain't every day that somebody decides to do their first doc and it has this type of response and recognition and whatnot. Now you're making waves, you're making change, you're making impact. I'm just, I what a treat to share this conversation with you and exchange like this because yeah, I'm, I'm officially a fan. You're so sweet. This has been so lovely. 
Well, take care of yourself. The mother in me wants you to like <laughs> preserve. Take, take care of Caitlin. Take care take of Caitlin. Care of Caitlin. Next, <laughs> that's the sequel. That's the sequel. <laughs> there it is. There it is. You guys, thank you so much for hanging out with me on Cat Sadler Now. Don't forget to rate and review the show and make sure you're subscribed or following so you never miss an episode. It sure is a beautiful day. I'll see you next time. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.